Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with all of you this Sunday after Easter. Before we begin, I'd love to give a quick shout out to all of our friends up at Christ Church of Amherst. We heard you had a great Easter celebration and even have the tradition of firing off confetti to celebrate our risen Lord, which I love that. And a big hi to our team down in Foxborough as you're getting ready to launch our campus there. God has brought together an amazing team. And if you're interested at all in being a part of that work of launching this campus, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you know somebody who lives in that vicinity, we'd love to have a chance to help you uh, help us connect with them as well. And so we'd encourage you to go to grace.org slash Foxborough to help do that and help us uh, get connected with you and with whomever you might know. So as we begin this morning, I'd love for you to imagine for a moment that you have been given the task of recording the account of Jesus' resurrection that's going to be heard by every person all throughout the world, whoever reads the Bible, until Christ comes again. It's a pretty big responsibility, isn't it? The good news is the Holy Spirit is going to be there to help you and help you be guided along that process. The challenging news is that still as a writer, you're going to have to make all the challenging and tough decisions that any writer has to make. With all the things that you could say, what do you include and what do you leave out? See, if you're writing around Jesus' time, you wouldn't have the great technology that we have, like in a Word document, to write as much or as little as you would like. You'd be writing on a papyrus scroll instead. This was expensive. This was, I had a limited amount of space in which to write. It was a very rare commodity. I brought along here a picture of one of the oldest New Testament documents that we have. And as you can see here on this document, that to make use of all the available space on these pieces of papyri, they would not actually put spaces between the words. If you're confused by what that means, trust me, it's still Greek to me, too. (laughs) But if you had that much limited space in which to write, you would be careful to be as precise and deliberate and intentional about every single word that you chose to include because you didn't have all the room in the world to say whatever you just wanted. And so today, we're going to open up John's Gospel And as we read it, we're going to find some details in his resurrection account that might strike us as being kind of out of place, maybe a little random. At moments, you might think that John is writing far more haphazardly than intentionally. But today, I want us to assume that John included all the details that he has for a good reason. And what we're going to discover is that the details that are included here, which might seem out of place at first, must be so important because they are paired with the very resurrection account of Jesus rising from the dead, the greatest thing that's ever happened. And so if John pairs these details with Jesus' resurrection, then we know they have to be incredibly significant. And what we're going to discover is the issue that we're going to be talking about and that we're going to be discovering is something that's so life-taking that we want, uh, John and Jesus wants to make sure that we know all about. And this issue that we're going to discuss, I'd be willing to bet that if there's one thing in your life that you wish you could stop doing, I bet it would relate to the issue we're going to talk about here today. So anybody want to know what it is? Well, you have to open the Bible here with me to find out. So let's turn to John chapter 20, and we'll begin with verse 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, 
and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary discovers the tomb is empty, runs back to the disciples, to, to Peter, and then to this other disciple referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. That disciple, we believe, is the writer John who authored this gospel. He was one of Jesus' inner three along with Peter and his brother James. What's interesting about this phrase, the one whom Jesus loved, is that John writes that to describe himself. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three gospels, John is never referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> Only in this gospel. So if you're one of the other disciples who you think Jesus loves too, how does that make you feel? Let's keep reading on. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and ran toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, in case we forgot, also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. So based on my reading of this text, what issue do you think we're talking about here today? Anybody think competition? Who thinks they came up with that answer first? <laughs> By a show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself somewhat of a competitive person? Some honest people here, some maybe not so honest people. How many of you think you're more competitive than other competitive people? Well, if so, then you probably would have fit right in with Jesus' disciples because they got very competitive with one another. We see here three times in this passage that John indicates that he got to the tomb faster than Peter did. And not only did he get to the tomb faster than Peter did, but he was the one who believed. When Peter walked into the tomb, he saw it and was kind of confused and didn't really know what to do or think. But John, when he walks in, he stops and he sees what's going on and he comes to believe and, and that probably means that he did believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but he probably didn't know all of what that implied and how that connected with all the other scriptures. In our adult learning center, we have, uh, which were some great classes are starting here today that you'll be sure to want to check out. But in our adult learning center, we have a painting that captures this very moment of Jesus and Peter at the tomb looking in. You can see some of the differences here about them. Peter, of course, is older than John. We see John is very emotional. Peter, maybe not quite as much. It shows a little bit about their different countenances and maybe perhaps why John called, or Jesus called two different people of different temperaments to follow him. Now, kind of as a little bit of an aside here, don't you find it maybe similar that, that John looks like Orlando Bloom? <laughs> <laughs> and that's Orlando Bloom who uh, also plays Legolas from Lord of the Rings, kind of looks like him a little bit. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Well, if you are, let me nerd out with you for just a moment. Just as Legolas looks like John, I think Peter also looks like Gimli. What do you think? <laughs> and I put this up here actually for a purpose and not just to make associations, which are fun. 
But just, if you know the story, Legolas and Gimli were on the same side. They were both fighting to save Middle Earth. And along the way, they had quite a competition going on between them to see who was the better warrior. And I think their relationship in many ways can be compared to the relationship between Peter and John. They were both Jesus' disciples. They both loved the Lord. They wanted to follow him, but they also wanted to follow Jesus better than the other person, I think, at different times. And I think that's an issue that Jesus wants us to hear through this gospel account here today. So why include these details right here? Well, it's probably because of what the disciples were discussing before Jesus was crucified. Over in Luke's gospel, uh, it, the recorded it talks about how Jesus was sharing the Last Supper with them. And after they have this meal, here's what comes up and what the disciples talk about. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, can you imagine this? You are getting to sit around the table as Jesus breaks bread, which is symbolic for his body that's about to be broken and beaten for us. And then he's gonna, we're going to get to share the cup, representing his blood shed for us and for the forgiveness of sins. And all the while, this beautiful, intimate meal is taking place. The disciples have in the back of their head this question, who among us is the greatest? What an adventure and just missing the point, right? <laughs> and if just as they were missing the point before Jesus was crucified, they were in danger of missing the point again after he was resurrected. And I think Jesus wants to address this head on as we're going to see. I think we can relate to this in our city in Boston about wondering who is the greatest. Have you found Boston to be a little bit competitive at different times? Earlier this year, the Patriots had a stunning Super Bowl comeback, and uh, after that, I know I thought you got a lot more hoots and hollers for that, but after that game, Tom Brady now has five Super Bowl victories, and he gets referred to now, this handsome man gets referred to as a dirty animal, the GOAT. <laughs> and that acronym, of course, stands for greatest of all time. And so many of us want to become the greatest of all time at something, or at least our city. We want to be the greatest of whatever it is that we, are, we care most about. We want to have the greatest medical facilities and care that can be provided anywhere, and we really do, and that's a great thing. We believe we have the greatest sports teams of all times. Between the Pats, Celtics, Red Sox, and Bruins, there are 36 championships that the city of Boston has won. That's more than any other city in America, with one exception, New York City. But they have more teams between those four sports than Boston does, so that doesn't really count. And who really cares about New York, right, Tim? And <laughs> Pastor Brian, no one cares about them. We have the greatest race in the world, last Monday's marathon. We have some of the greatest schools and colleges and universities. We have, of course, the greatest churches anywhere in the world and the greatest pastors that exist anywhere, right? Well, as fun as it is to be competitive and to care about these sort of things, competing with one another and living in a world where that seems to be so important also brings with it a very dark shadow side. Earlier this month, the New York Times did a feature article on the town of Lexington, Massachusetts. The title of the article was called, It Takes a Suburb, A Town Struggles to Ease Student Stress. And the article features how this great, beautiful town 
has this dark side to it where the school systems are so competitive. The environment there has so much pressure and stress on students that there are now record high levels of anxiety that our children experience and feel. That level of anxiety has led to rising rates of depression. And that depression has led to some very tragic outcomes, which we grieve and mourn along with our community here. To understand what it's like to be a student in that ruthlessly, uh, ruthlessly competitive environment, one student wrote a poem called Stress, which the article included. Let's listen to it. Clammy hands and a tap-tapping foot, even lying there in bed, the tests and projects and quizzes and quizzes and projects and tests cannot be forgotten. The endless list of deadlines seems to never stop growing, and the pressure builds up. It builds and builds and builds, but the release valve is nearly within reach. There is a pause, a pause used to fantasize about a burden-free life. And during this pause, the pressure swiftly, silently envelops the dreamer to ensure that this dreamer, this naive, hopeful student, will never cease working, working towards some perverted portrayal of success. See, this pull toward competing and winning it is no mere game. The well-being of our children is at stake. Lives are literally on the line. Friends, what kind of world are we perpetuating? What kind of world are we even encouraging? Now, while some forms of competition can undoubtedly be friendly, they can be fun, they can be a blessing and a gift, and some forms of competition are just completely unavoidable based on the market economy that we find ourselves in. But while competition can sometimes be good and sometimes it's unavoidable, friends, we have to be ruthlessly vigilant to ensure that competition is never what, is never what becomes the ultimate driving force in our lives. Because winning never delivers on all that it promises. It doesn't. There is more to life than outdoing one another. And the life that is available to us is the life that's found in the one who has defeated death, sin, and evil once and for all. It's the ultimate victory. What Christ has done, no accomplishment on earth comes close to comparing. So we need to find ourselves wrapped up in his victory, to find our identity in that. It's dangerous to let competition drive our lives. And I believe that's what Peter is going to get confronted with here by Jesus in just a moment. Let's see if we look here to John 21, flipping over a little bit here. Let's look at how Jesus addresses this competitive spirit between Peter and John. Verse 15, we find that Jesus has now made several resurrection appearances, and he's just had breakfast on the beach with the disciples, and he's going to tap Peter on the shoulder to address some unfinished business that they have here together. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said this to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack here in this exchange between Jesus and Peter. But essentially, what I hope we capture is to note that because Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked him now three separate times if he loves him to help reconcile their relationship so that, Jesus, so that Peter can once again be commissioned by Jesus to be a part of his work and ministry all over the world. And now Jesus is going to speak some very prophetic words over Peter's life as to what that ministry is going to entail. Verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go to wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Earlier on in Peter's life, he makes a bold declaration to Jesus that he would be willing to go wherever Jesus went to experience and suffer whatever Jesus went through. And Jesus actually affirms back then, not yet, but one day you will. And that day ultimately did come for Peter. When he was captured and arrested in Rome, church history tells us that he was crucified. And because he did not believe he was worthy to be killed in the same manner as his Lord and Savior Jesus, he asked to be crucified upside down. It's an amazing illustration of the power that the resurrection can have in someone's life. Peter was this cowardly, weak, running for his life sort of guy at different points, very foolish. And as he followed the resurrected Savior, he became a bold, influential, important, courageous preacher and ultimately a martyr. And the transformation that occurred in his life is the kind of transformation that can occur in any one of our lives as well as we embrace Christ's call, follow me. So Jesus speaks these amazing words over Peter's life. What does Peter do next? What's his response? Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, well, Lord, what about him? So can you imagine, Jesus uh, has just given Peter this incredible commissioning, and Peter's first reaction is to kind of deal with this burning question in his mind about John, kind of his rival, his competitor. Now, I'm not really sure what, why John is in the picture. It sounds like he's kind of eavesdropping on the conversation a little bit, not minding his own business. He might be doing that because maybe he's feeling a little bit of jealousy that Peter's getting this one-on-one -on -one time with his Lord Jesus. Maybe that's it. Maybe John knew that Peter denied Jesus three times, and John just can't wait to see Peter get busted. <laughs> that could be it, too. But either way, it sounds like John was just as concerned with Peter as Peter was with John. And let's see how Jesus responds to this. Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You must follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? Have you ever heard Jesus say those words to you? Can you feel the weight of these words that Jesus speaks These words of correction to Peter. See, I think Jesus rebukes Peter here. And this rebuke is the reason that John includes all these details about who gets to the tomb first. Because the message of every disciple of Jesus, that every disciple needs to hear, is is that now that Jesus has risen from the dead, there's no need to be competing with one another Because Jesus, he has already won. We don't need to be competing with one another. And if we do, it's just going to be missing the point. It's going to be a distraction to the most important thing that we can do. And that's to embrace Christ's words to all of us. Follow me. But we'll forfeit that faithfulness that we can exhibit in following Christ if we get too distracted by what everyone else is doing. And if we want to outdo them through our competition. To try and summarize everything I have talked about so far and we've discovered in the text, let me try and do it with this statement right here. It's a statement I hope that you remember. It's a statement that I hope you understand. And I hope it's a statement that you want to do everything you can by the Spirit's power to put into practice into your life. And here's what it is. Competing is defeating to God's purpose for you. Competing, it is defeating to God's purpose for you. Earlier we saw that the title of this sermon is The Call Versus the Pull. The Call Versus the Pull. What is going to make all the difference in our lives is whether we embrace the call or if we give in to the pull to compete. The call is Jesus' radical invitation to us. Come, follow me. Come be like me. The pull is the temptation to spend our energy and effort competing with one another to such a degree that Christ's call goes unanswered and his purpose for you and for us goes unrealized. That's why my hope today in giving this message is that we would all be challenged to embrace the call of Christ, follow me, and to be inspired to resist the pull to compete with one another. For competing, it is defeating to God's purpose for you. Let me offer two uh, reasons why. The first reason that competing is defeating to God's purpose for you is because defeating or competing is defeating to your character. It's defeating to your character. Christ's purpose for you and for me is that we would become more and more like Jesus. But when we expend all this energy at competing, we lose our capacity to cultivate the most Christ-like character that we can. Here's why. Let's say that we're playing a little competition with somebody else. It's probably in our minds. Maybe we're kind of scrolling through social media and we're looking through what their life looks like or what their work success is like or maybe uh, how big of a family they have or what a kind of interesting life they're living. Let's say that we want to measure up who's living better or who has the better life, me or this other person. And let's say in our little comparing game here that that I come out on top, that you come out on top, what's going to be the result if you win this little competition? 
What effect is that going to have on your character? Well, it's probably going to make you more prideful. You're going to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And pride is the greatest sin, as C.S. Lewis tells us. So that's not good for our character. But let's just kind of flip this here. Let's pretend that in this little competition, this little comparing game that we play with one another, that we come out on the losing end. What do you think is going to be the outcome for our character? We're probably going to think too low of ourselves. We're going to have too low of a sense of self-worth, the kind of self-worth that is completely ill-fitting for anybody who is made in the image of God, who is loved as a son or daughter of God. We're going to think too low of ourselves. And when we think too low of ourselves, we'll end up being very tempted to make decisions that lessen ourselves even more. And when we see what other people have in comparison to what we think we lack, envy is going to be the inevitable outcome. And envy, perhaps more than anything else, will rot your soul away. So what good is it to gain this whole outer world, all this winning, and yet forfeit your soul? So competing is defeating to your character. And secondly, competing is defeating to your calling. See, I think when Jesus says these words to Peter, what is that to you? He's saying them loud enough for John to be able to hear too. And here's the message he wants to get across. Peter, I need you to fulfill the calling I have given you, and I need John to fulfill the calling I have given John. Neither of these callings is superior to the other. They're both incredibly necessary. And as we look back at church history, we actually see how important both the calling of Peter and the calling of John, which were different, how important they were to the extension and the furtherment of, of God's mission through the church. Bruce Milne, a theologian, kind of compares the ministries of, Jesus, uh, sorry, of John and Peter this way. Let's put this up here on the screen. The ministries of John and Peter, they would be different. Peter would be the shepherd and John the seer. Peter would be the preacher and John the penman. Peter was the foundational witness and John the faithful writer. Peter would die in the agony and passion of martyrdom and John would live on to a great age and pass away in quiet serenity. They both had important legacies as leaders in the church. And just as they had great legacies as leaders in the church, some of the leaders in our country, as it was founded, had very important legacies that they left as well, even though they were given very different callings. Think about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, for instance. Washington was this big military leader. He had a big personality, had a great presence that was very magnetic. He was just the person our country needed to help rally together our disconnected colonies to help them become a united country. And just as he got things started and rolling as an important leader, Peter did that with the, with the church as well in the early days of its founding. Thomas Jefferson was far more of an intellectual thinker, writer, scholar than perhaps Washington was. With his linguistic abilities and deep thinking, he was able to craft the Declaration of Independence. With his diplomatic skills, he was able to uh, lock down the Louisiana Purchase. And with his culinary taste, he actually brought macaroni and cheese to popularity here in the United States. <laughs> what a great legacy. We needed both these guys. And just as we needed both and that's how kind of John was. He, he was very much that literary, deep intellectual thinker, very similar to Jefferson, minus the macaroni part. But, but just as we needed 
Washington and Jefferson's separate calling. So the early church needed Peter and John's separate calling. So uh, Middle Earth needed Legolas's and Gimli's separate callings. And so today, the church needs your calling and my calling. The church and what Christ's mission on earth does not want and need you to be trying to do what somebody else is called to do. The mission of the church needs you to do what God has called you to do, to respond in a very unique way to Jesus calling to you, come and follow me. We need you. And no matter what your background, no matter what your past is like, no matter what level of giftedness you think you have or don't have, God has a role for you. He has a part for you to play, and you need to do that as faithfully as you possibly can. In the words of the prophet Bill Belichick, do your job. Amen? So competing is defeating to your character and to your calling. So how can we start, start to rid ourselves of this ingrained habit that we've been raised and reared in of comp competition? How can we stop competing? Let me just offer you two quick things as we wrap up. The first is going to sound a little hokey, but I bet you're going to remember it. The first is to resist the twist. Resist the twist. What is that? Well, after Jesus tells Peter, follow me, what's the next thing that Peter does? What about him? What about John? How tempted are we when we're given a direct calling from the Lord to stop looking at him in his direction, to start looking at someone else's calling and maybe desiring theirs? Here's what the twist most likely looks like in our lives these days. Sometimes it's a really wise question to think, why am I scrolling through what I'm scrolling through? What's the point of that? See, what we often do here very subtly is we start comparing our lives and competing with other people that we see on social media or maybe across the office. And it's so important for us to resist the twist because that's what gets us taken away from the mission of God that he has for us. See, when we don't resist the twist and we give into that pull to compete, what happens is that God's rightful place in our lives, it gets substituted for something. And we don't just divert our focus on God to others, what we end up doing is substituting God and his leadership of our lives to put our own selves on the throne, not others. Let me try and draw this out to illustrate. Let's say this is me right here. And there we go, a little bit of muscle right there. <laughs> I at least make myself look good as a stick figure. All right, let's just say that we keep not resisting the twist, and we keep looking around us, we keep looking around at the other people, we keep twisting and turning, what about him, whoever that John or Peter might be in your life? And what starts to happen is we keep twisting and twisting, looking at others, as we start to see that our lives ultimately aren't about other people, but our lives end up fully revolving around ourselves. And that is the worst possible way that we can live, is to be self-indulgent, and to be self-obsessed. So we need to resist the twist. And the way to resist the twist is to secondly, recall your calling. Recall your calling. If the twist or competition is what we are to say no to, then we can overcome that, not simply by just saying no and trying really hard, but the way to overcome that no to compete is to say a much better yes. And that yes is to embrace Christ's call on our lives. This upcoming weekend, our young adult ministry is taking its annual spring retreat up to Camperia in New Hampshire. And the theme of our weekend is uh, 
your place in God's world. That's the theme, your place in God's world. And all weekend, we're going to be making some space so that God the caller, his voice can be heard in our lives. We have to be listeners. And one of the things that we're going to unpack probably next Saturday is this idea that when we think about wanting to hear God's calling, most of the time, we want to hear what God is calling us to do next. But as we're going to contend, you will never know what God wants you to do next if you're not being faithful to what God has called you to do now. So what has God called you to be faithful with now? If you've wondered how I've given most of this message without using hardly any notes, the reason is because I haven't practiced that much or that I have that good of a memory. The reason is, is because I have given this sermon to myself so many times. I want to be the best follower of Christ that I possibly can be. I want to be the best pastor I can be. And so sometimes I get tempted to just give in to this pull to look at what other people are called to do, how God is using other pastors, how he's letting other people serve him in some bigger ways and more influential ways than he's called me to. And if I dwell too much thinking about that, I can start to feel like I'm second or third rate. I can start to feel like I'm a failure. And I can feel way too down and hard on myself. And in some of those low moments that I have had in my life, maybe you've had them too, I can hear Jesus' words coming to me like they came to Peter. Dave, what is that to you? What is that to you? And to help kind of pick myself up out of this situation by God's grace, I've started doing something to help me keep in focus what's most important. And I just call it my faithful list. My faithful list. Kind of like a task list, except it's just a reminder of what God has called us to do. And so what I'll do is I'll think about all the roles and responsibilities God has already given to me. And am I being faithful with those or not? So I think about, am I a follower of Christ? That's one of my roles. I'm, I'm a husband to Aaron. I'm a father to Dallas. I'm, I'm a friend. I'm a pastor here at Grace Chapel. I'm a son. I am a, I'm a neighbor, I'm a citizen. And I kind of categorize all these different things and think about the different responsibilities that uh, come along with each one of these different roles that God's given to me. And I start to examine my own life. Well, how faithful am I being with these areas? And then I start to even ask a harder question. If Jesus was going to have all these roles that I have and he was going to take over for me, how would he do these things if he was me? See, the way to resist the twist and to not compete and be driven by that is to become the kind of person who would just easily and routinely not be tempted to do that. And I believe the kind of person who would not be tempted to compete would be the person who is so locked in and focused on Christ that they know what Christ has called them to do, and they try and do that as faithfully as they possibly can. That's how we overcome all the dangers of competition. That is how we can faithfully live out Christ's mission in our lives and in this world. And my friends, the more faithfully you follow, the more God's purpose for you will be fulfilled. So how faithful are you being today to Christ's call to you to follow him? So as we wrap up, can you see now why John included all these details about who got to the empty tomb first? It wasn't so that we would all remember how fast John was, but it was to help us be warned to make sure that we don't end up running the wrong race. The way to life is never found 
and competing with others to try and outdo them. But the way to life is found in embracing the call of the one who has won it all, who has done everything, who is ultimately victorious. And he extends this invitation to us. It's life's greatest opportunity. Follow me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that we're given today to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you that despite our own failures and all the ways we've missed the point, that you give us this great opportunity. Today, Lord, I want to pray specifically for anybody who feels trapped by this tyranny of competition. I pray that they would find freedom in knowing that their identity is not linked to how well they perform or how well they stack up to other people, but their identity is found in you. And if you're that person today who just feels exhausted, who feels overly stressed and anxious and beaten down by the competitive world that we find ourselves in, today I want to invite you just to take a step of freedom and just to say to Jesus, yes, I want to follow you. Let me give you a moment just to to do that now before the Lord. His call to you has come, follow me. And maybe you're here today and have never made that decision to follow Christ. You've thought that just trying to be the best at whatever you're doing is the way to find life and satisfaction, but you know, if you're honest, it's left you empty. And Jesus wants to offer you a better way to live. And so maybe today you need to embrace his call to follow him for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time. And if that's you today, I invite you just to pray a silent prayer to the Lord. Lord, I'm following you. I choose to follow you. So Lord, I pray in the face of all the competitive forces that try and pull us away from you, that you would empower each and every one of us by your spirit to faithfully follow you so that you might receive all the glory so that our world might be blessed and that we might have a great sense of joy in following you and in knowing you. And it's in Christ's great name that everyone prayed together. Amen.